You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal, New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On New Ideal Live, we discuss complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Objectivism is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Uh, If you want to learn more about our journal and about the ideas of objectivism, you can visit newideal.einrand.org. That's up on the screen right now. Also, if you're watching us on social media today, either through Facebook or YouTube, that's one way you can always follow us. However, if you'd like to be able to interact with us more directly, the best way to do that is to join us through Zoom. Uh, and to do that, best thing to do is go to zoom.us slash join, type in the meeting ID 812-506-718. Uh, so for those of you who are joining us, especially in Zoom, you may have gotten an email earlier uh, announcing uh, another topic than what we're actually going to discuss today. We had originally scheduled today to talk about the topic of censorship and uh, certain uh, a controversy related to the president and Twitter. Uh, we, events of the weekend have really overshadowed that topic, so we plan to reschedule that for a future date, hopefully sometime next week. The obvious topic that we are going to discuss then is, is the events of the past uh, three, four days, really the past whole week, and that's the topic of violence in the streets. So uh, I'd like to now welcome my colleagues, Greg Salmieri and Ankar Gatte, to discuss this issue. Greg and Ankar, are you out there? Hi. Yeah. Hi, Ben. Hi. And uh, Ankar is the Chief Philosophy Officer for the Ayn Rand Institute, my colleague at ARI. Uh, my name is, of course, Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at ARI. Greg Salmieri uh, is, uh, well, his new title is a Senior Philosophy Scholar at the University of Texas, at the Tex- University of Texas Austin's Salem Center. Hi, Greg. Thanks for joining us as well. Yeah, new new title means first day on the job. <laughs> yes, actually, this is the official start day. Well, we we've got. Uh, I mean, you've got a full plate here to deal with, Greg. Um, so, just to, I want to start by just giving a, a recap of uh, things that have happened last week uh, that are going to be the subject of our discussion today. And it's been impossible for most people to avoid the fact that. Uh, a week ago today, May 25th, uh, there was the, uh, the killing of uh, African-American resident of Minneapolis, whose name was George Floyd. He was detained uh, by Minneapolis police on the allegation that he was trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. One of the responding officers, uh, one Mr. Derek Chauvin, restrained Floyd by kneeling on his neck. Uh, this is something that you can see in multiple smartphone videos from several different angles. Uh, Floyd protested that he couldn't breathe, that he uh, he didn't want the officer to kill him. Uh, The officer refused to release him. Bystanders protested. 
the three police colleagues with Officer Chauvin did not. And of course, uh, George Floyd eventually died because of this. Uh, immediately after that, uh, on the following day, May 26th, protests erupted in Minneapolis. Uh, soon after that, violence broke out in Minneapolis, including the burning of a police precinct, protests and violence, uh, including widespread looting have now spread to over 100 cities in the United States, uh, East Coast, West Coast, Chicago, really everywhere. And many cities have been paralyzed because of this for the last weekend. Um, peaceful assemblies were, were initially, of course, respected by, uh, by city governments uh, when this happened. But uh, at a certain point, it often happened that the assemblies were declared unlawful, curfews were imposed, uh, mass arrests were enacted, I believe, on the first night of riots uh, here in Los Angeles, there were 500 people arrested. Uh, Sunday, the 31st, the National Guard was called out in several states, including here in California. Uh, Los Angeles the first night, Santa Monica the second night. This did not stop the widespread looting and burning and uh, protests are continuing to be scheduled so there's no end in sight. And this of course happens all against the backdrop of the global pandemic that we've now been dealing with for several months. Uh, in many states, including California, uh, businesses were just beginning to be allowed to open again. Uh, some of them have now been targeted by the, by the rioters and the looters. This is a real punch to the gut for them. And while, of course, many of these protesters have worn masks, uh, not all of them have. And there's a growing concern that the cities with these mass protests are, could end up experiencing another wave of infection. So there's really a lot going on, a lot to discuss. Uh, it's very disturbing in lots of ways. Greg, Ankar, did you want to add anything to that summary of facts? as far as we can ascertain them right now? Just just two things, um, or two headings of things. Uh, one is that uh, in this case, if I'm not mistaken, the police officers uh, involved were very quickly fired by the police department. That hasn't happened in uh, all uh, cases of uh, police brutality or alleged pr police brutality. So fa fairly quickly, they were dismissed, and then they were charged already, right? With, or rather, um, Chevron, the one who, who, uh, whose knee uh, was on the guy and who seems to have killed him, uh, was charged. Um, so, uh, and also several police uh, officials from other municipalities around the country and police officers groups have very quickly condemned this as a inappropriate use of force. So it's this is not a case where the police in general have been um, backing up uh, these officers or where their particular police department was or where there was uh, a slowness to prosecute, I think. Um, whether or not that's happened in other cases, that doesn't seem to have happened here. Um, or anything? Yeah, I mean, I, that issue, I think we should talk about, we'll talk about, I think, uh, what's constructive actions to take in the light of this and what's not constructive. And part of what I've seen about why they got um, uh, fired so quickly was activism on the, uh, or not in whole, but in part of, of, um, of at the gra grassroots in in Minnesota. Um, I would add, so in terms of thinking, you brought up the global pandemic. Um, I think it's useful to think of it also in the context of race. 
So there's been a lot of stories about the pandemic is disproportionately affecting in, in the US, it will be put uh, affecting uh, African Americans and Hispanics when you, but it's, this is sort of across, it's certainly in parts of Europe as well, when you read about the UK and when the officials talk about it, it's colored people there. It's, so it's already, we've got, whether you think like that's the right way to look at the statistics and what it means and whether race is a proxy for you don't have a lot of money, you live in more close quarters with a lot of people and so on. But that's how it's been reported. So it you have that environment. And then we've had other cases. If you take the uh, recent cases, the Ahmad Arbery in Georgia killing. I mean, I find that very disturbing, not because I know exactly what happened, but the fact that it doesn't seem to, I mean, a person's gunned down in broad daylight and it doesn't even seem to warrant investigation. That, um, and then, then video came out and that prompted it, but it took video months later for there to be an investigation of that. Or, and if you take, I mean, something obviously much um, milder, but you can take it as more symptomatic of what happened in Central Park uh, with the bird watcher. And the fact that and the, the person um, so who was discriminated against, he's very thoughtful about it. Like he doesn't view it, she's not necessarily a racist, but she went so easily to a racist place, I think is the way he put it. And the threat, the threat towards him was, I'm gonna call 911 and say there's an African-American who's harassing me. And the idea that it's just sort of so easy to think, okay, yeah, you're gonna be scared of the police. Not, it doesn't matter if you're doing anything right or wrong, but it, you're gonna be scared of the, that's disturbing. And that's part, to, to think that if you think of this as, as some people say, it's boiling over. You have to get, there's been other things going on. Um, so this is not just an incident, one incident, and not a sort of context of a lot of racial things have been in the headlines. So I think that uh, we should divide our discussion today roughly into two parts. Uh, first part is to discuss uh, the uh, the incident in Minneapolis that started this latest uh, the latest set of protests, uh, the, and including the more general uh, problem that it seems to be a part of, uh, which is police misconduct, overreach, uh, brutality, and then we'll talk about the response that uh, that uh, protesters have had to this and and the riots, and so you know what is the problem here and what is the proper solution. Uh, Lots to discuss there. Um, Greg, I had originally wanted to call this uh, a discussion about police brutality, but you you made the point that you thought that's not the right thing to call it, uh, well, and you had I, a couple I mean, interesting reasons I think that. that is the right thing to call this particular incident in uh, in Minneapolis. I mean, this the broader issue lies by this cop. But part of the, the mis general mistrust of the police, I think among people in general, and then among the African-American population in particular, and then within certain communities of certain police departments in particular, is not just that sometimes there's someone killed, but there's a kind of general air of suspicion. There's, um, uh, I mean, you know, warrantless, uh, you know, knockless raids and uh, all kinds of things that are happening or are reputed to have happened or be happening, right? And, you know, maybe the realities don't always line up, but there's the, the, the sense that the police are on our backs, after us, always looking uh, into us, uh, not our allies, not our friends, not people who are trying to help and protect us, but people who are um, a threat to us. 
And that is true when people are afraid of being shot, but also if they're, you know, being pulled over and they don't know why they're being pulled over. And uh, if they're being searched and they don't know why they're being searched or they feel like they're, it's unjust that they're being searched. A lot of people are afraid of the police uh, because they might kill them, but also because they might, they think they might plant evidence on them, they might, whatever. And there's a question as to which of these fears are justified and in what cases. Uh, and it, it's actually hard to tell that. Uh, but there's a real problem of mistrust of the police. And even if in some cases the police don't deserve the mistrust, it's a problem that police has to have to solve because it's part of the police department's job to protect the community, to have a kind of relationships with the community that um, that enable them to do that. And if we're, we have a situation where the police are widely feared, it's a problem that has to be solved from the police side, not the community side. It's part of their job to have that. And we can talk about why this is. I don't think it's the fault of, I mean, it's the fault of some individual officers, but I don't think it's primarily the fault of officers doing a bad job. The, the What police are tasked with now is irrational and impossible in a lot of ways. But um, I think that's the whole context for understanding these events. And just why it's irrational and impossible, we are in two alleged wars, or you can call them wars, uh, prosecuted by the police against uh, types of crimes that are not crimes. You have a war on drugs where most drugs are prohibited, and then you have the police in aggressive tactics tasked with stopping drug trade and drug use. And you have a war on immigration where most immigration is prohibited. And you have police or police-like units, ICE and so forth, tasked with you know rooting out immigrants. And this creates a real adversarial situation where people, lots of people, have to be afraid of the police. And in both of those, it's the law is so nebulous. So immigration, it's it's not as though just everybody gets thrown out the minute you're. It's so much at the discretion of what the particular immigration officer or police officer, what are they going to do? Are you in a sanctuary city or not? It's, and that if you have no idea um, how the law functions, you give so much discretion to the officers that I, I mean, when I encounter immigration officers, I fear them. I'm an immigrant, I have a green card, but it's unclear what my rights are, if I can talk back, if I can do anything. And I have distrust of the officer. Not that I think everyone's corrupt or ill-motivated, but I have no idea what their power is and if they're having a bad day and so on. It's, it's actually a tremendous amount of power that they can wield. And I've been once or twice in situations where you can't call anybody, you can't do anything, we're searching all your bags and so on, and you basically have no rights. Um, so, that, so that's part of the, when these are, when you have unjust laws, they can't be uh, properly enforced. And it creates a very difficult environment, even for good cops to operate in. So we've, you've, you've already talked about the issue of what it is that the police are tasked with doing. But there's a separate question of how they undertake that tasks and the protocols that they use. And we had, in this case at least, in Minneapolis, somebody who was uh, accused of trying to pass a counterfeit bill. Now, I assume that uh, you would both agree that, that it's within the uh, proper uh, domain of the police to enforce against uh, counterfeiting. But there's still a big question here about how should they do that? What's the proper way to do that? And even if someone like George Floyd is suspected 
uh, of uh, criminal activity like that. He, he's still only a suspect. Uh, he has due process rights like everyone else. Uh, he's not been uh, proved guilty. He's presumed innocent until proven guilty. And the general principle here, I, I, I assume you both would agree, has got to be that uh, police have the right to use force to detain a suspect, but that has to be circumscribed by suspects due process rights. And that means that the force used has to be the minimum necessary, the minimum necessary to detain them, uh, which you would think means not unnecessarily endangering their life. Uh, and of course, I mean, it's true that uh, police have to make snap judgment calls in the moment when they're, when they're dealing with suspects and it can be difficult. But I think part of the reason why uh, there's been such universal outrage about this particular incident is that from every angle uh, you, that you can see this event happening, it's really hard to understand why anyone would, anyone would think that what he did was necessary, given uh, the, what this gentleman was uh, accused of doing. Um, thoughts on, on the issue of protocols uh, for detention uh, and uh, otherwise how police need to deal with suspects? I'll say something just on the counterfeiting. Um, so it's, it's, it, you have to remember that a video is a snapshot into things. It doesn't give you all the facts. So I don't know actually what happened, what the police thought they knew. But if you take just counterfeiting, that you're passing a counterfeit $20 bill, um, you can't even assume that that's intentional, that that is happening. I mean, I, I, mean, I rarely use cash now. But once in a while, I go to a store and, and they do the inspection. And I wonder, like, is the bill counterfeit? I don't know. I mean, it's not like I investigate the cash that I have that I get out of a machine and whatever. And is it counter? So it might happen that I give a, and it's a counterfeit bill. That I didn't do it intentionally. So even if the shopkeeper, the, the, there's a bill that's counterfeit, you can't assume that the person is intentionally doing this. So it's such, if that's just the fact that you've got a counterfeit $20 bill, it's such a minor incident that the idea that you need force here and it, it's it's and you need a lot of forces. It's um, there's such an onus on the police to say that the oh no, actually a fair amount of force was needed here, and nothing that I've seen. But that doesn't mean it's there's a reason these go to court, um, or at least should go to court. It, you have to get a detailed investigation of all the facts to reach an assessment. But of what's come out, it doesn't look like there's anything that could warrant um, the amount of force that was used. And certainly not when he's pinned to the ground and you've got a knee on his neck and so on. Um, and I haven't heard anyone allege even that, oh no, there's a, when you see the full facts, there's another story that's going to happen. Um, and that sometimes but, happens in these kinds of disputes. Sometimes you get a little snippet of a video and you don't get the context of what it was the suspect did in advance that, that warranted what the police how the police responded. And when you see that, you sometimes think, oh, maybe they did need to use it. But that is definitely, that's not the case here. Or what uh, the officers might have known going in. Maybe the person had a prior record of being, you know, some martial arts master or something. You know, who could imagine something. It's hard to imagine something that would make this particular um, maneuver justifiable. Everyone's telling him and he's screaming, I can't breathe. But you could imagine something that would put it in a somewhat different light. But, um, and you have to know you don't know things. But the it is important that there you ask what the procedure should be, 
And what the procedure should be is, I don't know because I'm not an expert in law enforcement, but there should be procedures that make it clear to the person in, in the situation and to bystanders what's happening and why they're doing what they're doing. And more equally importantly, there have to be procedures in the police department, in local government, etc., to make it clear after the fact and over time what has happened and why it's happened. And so that people in the community, um, uh, and now, I mean, in the community of Minneapolis, but now across the country, can understand um, this is what happened, this cop was found to have done this, and that's why he was prosecuted, and if he, he's acquitted, here's why he was acquitted, and there's transparency, and if he's convicted, here's why he's convicted, and there's transparency to the process that people can be confident that the police are there to protect and serve them, not to um, damage them or kill them. And of course, in any organization, there will occasionally be bad apples, and uh, you know, it's hard to know how many bad apples there are. Maybe there were a, a relative few and they just get a lot of attention. But part of what we need is to know that and to know that they're addressed well when it happens and that it's taken seriously so that we can have trust in the institution. One of the things about this incident that makes me understand why uh, trust in these institutions has eroded is that it's not simply that this police officer used this chokehold on this suspect and that uh, he died as a result, but it's, he's doing it in front of all these people. He even knows that he's being filmed by, mul by multiple people. They're asking him, they're, you know, they're, they're warning him you're killing this guy. He's warning him you're killing me. And still he's doing it. And what, what would possess a person, what would possess a police officer to do that in full daylight. Uh, somebody in the chat pointed out that uh, this particular uh, person, uh, this particular officer had a record uh, of a long history of complaints. I've, I've, I've seen uh, evidence of that as well. So there is something endemic here that needs to be addressed. And I think ever since smartphones have uh, become uh, widely used and we've started to see more and more uh, clips like this, both in and out of context, it's, it's, I think it's become clear to any honest person that, that there's an endemic problem, which many of us probably weren't uh, sensitive to before. Yeah, it's been widely claimed by, you know, African-American community leaders for decades and decades that there's an endemic problem here, at least in certain cities, that black people are afraid of the police and have every reason to be, that uh, black, you know, mothers of black boys have to have a, a talk with them or fathers as they're growing up about how to be especially careful when you're around police and, and so forth, that, you know, um, white children don't have. And I can think of, you know, occasions myself as a, a white kid when I was first driving around and stopped by a cop and, um, I made a joke back to him or something, you know, where I thought like, boy, I was pretty confident that I was safe in this situation. And I don't know that I should have been that confident even as it was, but imagine if I was uh, of a race or a social group or whatever that he was inclined to be afraid of, right? So I think the, the claim, there's been a claim for decades and decades that this has been an endemic serious problem. Um, and a lot of people, uh, you know, including me, weren't, you know, alert to it, uh, certainly earlier on. And now we have these smartphone videos and we're seeing more and more cases of it. And uh, each case looks horrific in its own right. There are also cases with white victims, of course. But um, in, 
each case, you can maybe come up with a way, well, well, maybe I don't have all the facts, et cetera. But there are so many cases. And what we need is, if you're going to say, well, maybe I don't have all the facts in this case, or maybe there's another side to this story, what we need is a way to be assured that these things are being adjudicated properly and worked out. And I think it's, it's very reasonable that people don't have confidence in that and that they're upset and that they're frightened, and they should be. Let's pause on the race issue for just a moment, because uh, clearly everyone uh, who's, most everyone who's protesting this incident is framing it in racial terms. Uh, we know that many of the people who are targeted with police brutality are members of racial minorities. Now, when you look at the statistics, at least when I've looked at the statistics, it's not entirely obvious that racial minorities are uh, disproportionately targeted. I mean, there's a lot of different confounding variables, uh, socioeconomic status and so forth. Nevertheless, uh, this is a problem that occurs in the context of a long history of state-sponsored racial segregation and oppression, including uh, real uh, involvement by law enforcement agencies, at least in certain parts of the country. So it's, I, I think it's at least understandable that many people would perceive this as another example of that legacy. Uh, and even if it's not in this particular case, it's, it's, it's still the fact that people perceive it this way is, is an issue about trust that we would need to talk about. So further thoughts on the race angle on this. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, as you said, it's understandable why it will be immediately translated into this was racially motivated and it may well have been. Um, but if you're thinking about you want, and everybody has an interest that the police operates well, um, that it operates objectively, that you know how force is going to be used in your society. Um, I mean, you have a, we have such a tremendous interest that, that police are good and they're doing their job well, that you have to be open to, there can be a variety of factors here that are a problem including when you hear the police chiefs talk about it, it there's issue, and, and some of the mayors talk about it, there's issue about like, what is their training like? There's concern that um, there's too much of a military, uh, kind of military frame of mind or mindset that is creeping into the police. I think that is a huge problem. The police and the military are very, very different organizations. And you don't want to just take like ex-military people and plug them in to the police as though, well, you're basically it's the same job. There's, they should have, I mean, their assumptions and kind of standing orders should be very different, I think. So there's worries about that. There's worries about that the police unions have too much power and it's sort of a club and they can isolate themselves and they'll never testify against one another and so on. And if that is institutionally has been created, that's a problem. So there can be... Uh, and there might be, and it, some of these might make it easier for people who have bad racial motivations to come into the force, to stay in the force. Part of when a police force gets corrupted, and, and we talk a little bit about bad laws can really corrupt. Like, who wants to be a police officer and be harassing people? I mean, now there's less of it, but for marijuana, that they possess marijuana. And day in and day out, you push out the better people, and you get in the worse. So it's it, it might be one of the factors, but I, it's, if there's worries about that the police can function better than this, it's not just that they're racially motivated. There's a whole host of things 
that should be looked at, including issues about the law. Do they have too much immunity? There's been a bunch of stories about that. And, so, and if you're really serious about what does it mean to improve this, you have to be serious about let's look at all the factors that are creating problems and how do we address all of these and not just single out uh, the racial issue, which I have no doubt there's some element of that at work in some of these cases. Also, I mean, it's not like racism is the only evil or the worst evil. Or the if, if a cop kills somebody who he shouldn't have killed, what does it matter if he's prejudiced against him because he's black or he doesn't like the way he's dressed or he reminds him or, or, or he's just a generally violent guy or whatever it is, right? Maybe he's someone who snaps to judgment of, uh, of anyone who's a suspect and... He, uh, he'll kill them, white, black, Asian, whatever. Uh, the problem is you have this this violent guy. Now, if there's, if if it turns out as it, it probably does in some places, uh, that you know it's particularly racial prejudice that's animating it, then that's a, a, a clue to what solution we need to it. Particularly if it's something like implicit biases or something, and there's training you can get to to make those not influence your judgment in the moment, but. It's the guy's equally dead, and he equally shouldn't be, um, whatever reason the person's doing it. And maybe it's not racial prejudices on the cops and something. It's just that they're bad cops, and maybe the result ends up coming down more on African Americans just because of the community that these cops are on the beaten or something. But it's still the same problem, and it's still just as bad, right? So I don't think we have to be. The, the key issue is well, is it race motivated or not? Let's maybe talk a little bit more about the uh, immunity issue. This is something that I've learned more about just in the past few days, but it, it does turn out that there, there is a legal doctrine called qualified immunity, dates from a Supreme Court decision of some decades ago where uh, it was ruled that the police shouldn't face legal liability for enforcing the law in good faith and with probable cause. And it turns out that it's really hard to prove liability by this standard. The only standard that the court offered was that if the same uh, police officers had been accused of similar things in similar situations, and it's almost impossible to find uh, that in, in all of the kinds of relevant cases. Uh, the argument the people have made against this immunity doctrine is that it then gives the, uh, the police little incentive to reform, to avoid brutality, uh, you can look up lists of abuses that uh, police seem to have uh, not been prosecuted for when this doctrine was, in, was invoked. Uh, and apparently there's even widespread agreement among different uh, uh, commentators and uh, justices on opposite sides of the court. This is something that needs to be uh, reformed, everyone from Clarence Thomas to so Sonia Sotomayor. And apparently, I, from what I understand, the Supreme Court is actually hearing a case uh, which about this very issue this week. Uh, and so what do you, do you, do you both have thoughts on this question of uh, what the standards uh, for liability should be in the police? Uh, should it be possible to sue the government? And how easy should it be to sue the government? And is this one of the uh, tools in our toolbox for holding uh, government officials accountable for making what they're doing more transparent. Thoughts on that? Um, you want to go ahead, Gregor? So I don't know 
I've also read the articles uh, about the, the cases coming up in the court, uh, and um, from what I've read in them, it seems like this uh, was a bad decision and should be overturned. And that, But I haven't read enough about it, and I haven't read enough of the responses on the other side to be confident in that judgment. But th there's a meta point here, which is this kind of thing, the kind of thing that civil rights or... or um, um, uh, what's the general term, a public interest a litigation firms are doing in fighting these kinds of cases, right, and trying to change these kind of precedents, and that some Congress people are doing and lobbyists are trying to do in changing these laws. This is the kind of work that ought to be done, this genre of work, to address this problem. What, figuring out what's both these kind of abstract, what are the general problems in society, but then more concretely, what particular legal doctrines, what particular policies, what particular practices that can be changed uh, are exacerbating this problem, and what are the steps, smallest steps we could take to start to change them. And so it's, it's very heartening that there are people doing this work and that there's this court case coming forward. And I'd like to see a lot more of that in the wake of the killings in, I guess it was around 2015, when there was um, Eric Garner and Michael Brown and, and Freddie Gray, and there was all of this kind of, a, a whole bunch of cases at the same time came, or near time, came to public attention. Um, and there was a lot of uh, concern about policing then, right? There was a period when there was starting to be a lot of talk and a lot of good newspaper reporting and a lot of good commentary articles about what kind of changes could we use? Should there be more body cameras? What are the downsides of more body cameras? What have different police departments done around the country that seem to have helped or hadn't? And that whole discussion, to my mind, got kind of uh, preempted by the rioting that started happening and the um, kind of groups that um, had a tear it down mentality and blamed, you know, it's our capitalist structure that does it, or it's that we have a government at all, and there were some anarchists or whatever, that were uh, that way of kind of conceptualizing it. And that, I think, kind of preempted a discussion that was taking place in the public square about what needs to be done to actually fix this. And it's very heartening that there were people who continued on doing that thinking and had been doing it prior to that, and hopefully that will bear some fruit in, uh, in this court case. It's a, a really good point and something that we'll have to touch on also when we talk about the, the protests and the riots. Um, Anka, did you have more you wanted to say? Yeah, about I want that? to say something about, because this, this goes to the issue of what it means to really be in a position to know what you're talking about. And Greg brought up that it, like he hasn't looked at this much, doesn't know that much. I haven't either. I've re started reading this weekend various things. But one, the job of a reporter is difficult. Um, I think legal reporting is difficult. You have to know a fair amount about the law to accurately report even on decisions if you're not just quoting what the decision was. Um, and I don't think our news media in general is in a very good state right now. So I'm suspicious of almost all reporting. I'm suspicious of this reporting. So I actually started reading some of the cases with the judge's decisions. So, and the cases that the New York Times editorial board linked to, uh, I think it was some cases that Washington Post reporter linked to. And I read three or four of the judge. Everyone I thought the judge is saying something different than what was reported mm -hmm. in the story. Um, and that's not just like, I don't think it's, this is some nefarious plot to do it. It's, I think this kind of reporting is hard 
And you need to really try to get the whole reasoning of the judge to get this. So I don't even think, I think there are cases where it's, they're too concrete bound. If I can't find a precedent exactly like this situation, then there was no way for the police to know that this was unlawful behavior. And so you can't prosecute him, even if he did in some sense something wrong. But I found one of the, I think it was a Ninth Circuit decision where the judge explicitly said, like, this can't be the standard that you have to find exactly carbon copy like this. And if you can't, then it's a, like, no, it, that's not what it means. And, and a very reasonable, I think, interpretation of what it actually, what the standard means. So even there's differences between what actually is the standard, how is it applied? And is it applied into concrete bound away and not really understanding what the standard is? And you would, I mean, so I don't think I know this, but I know enough now, I think, to be skeptical of the easy reporting on this. Um, and, but this is, again, if this is the, if what your aim is, is try to improve the law, try to improve the functioning of the police and the court system, this is for sure something you would look at, but you would actually look at it and think, how is this operating? What were they trying to do? What's working? What's not working? How can you improve this? And that's what it would mean to have a constructive focus on, we have to do better and we can do better than what the current situation is. So we have to do better. Uh, it's, it's going to take some study to figure out how to do better. I want to ask both of you, especially about the angle of the police officer himself suppose we're talking about a good police officer or someone who believes in the rule of law, who wants to enforce proper laws, but is working in a system where not all the laws are proper and where people don't trust them in part for that reason, in part for a lot of other reasons. Uh, what, what is a good police officer to think and how should, how should they, how should they conduct themselves and how should they, how should they work to try to reform uh, the system that they're working in? Thoughts on that? I think one thing that they probably need to recognize uh, is that they're a victim of a lot of what's wrong about the system. And the reason why I think it's important to recognize that and then to understand it, not just to have a victim mentality, I'm a victim, but specifically what things are there about the system that are putting me in bad and difficult situations is because if you don't have clarity about that, you uh, tend to develop a, a general sense of aggrievedness and of um, sympathy with the people who are similarly aggrieved and you get into an us versus them mentality. I think it's very easy to. It's very difficult to follow a sense of principle and what's right and wrong when you're being treated wrongly and um, and you're, uh, it's just hard to believe in the rules and hard to follow them. And um, so I, I think we, we'd, ha we'd have to know more and I would have to know more than I do about just how bad and how prevalent various types of corruption are and so forth to, to have more specific steps. But really work to understand, like, if something seems wrong to you, if you seem like you're put in a bad or impossible situation, as I'm sure, I mean, in certain areas of the law, cops must be every day all the time, but, um, you know, other ones more occasionally, tr really try to identify what, what is it? What am I upset about here? What is wrong? Uh, and understand if you have to do something uh, 
because it's part of your job that you don't think is, I don't mean do something immoral, but like, you know, uh, you have to take this guy into custody or whatever, but you don't think what he's doing should have been a crime, but you uh, respect the general principle of rule of law and whatever until you're going to do it. Understand that, that that's what's happening and that's what you're doing. Um, so I think that's uh, the first thing I would would. I'll think that a, a cop is going to need to do, but it's just really hard. And it must be particularly hard now. I mean, police officers are among the essential workers and first responders who have to be out and about in the middle of a pandemic, including maybe arresting people who are out in the pandemic, who are the people who might be the most dangerous. I mean, it, it's the police are really put upon. And that, I think, is part of why some of them put upon others. Um, so I just think it's a difficult situation. The issue of uh, discretion is an interesting question here, you, and you've seen this come up in the pandemic. Uh, there have been various uh, city councils that have that have made it a, uh, an offense to go out in public without a mask, and there have been law enforcement agencies who've pushed back and 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 literally explicitly said, "We're not going to enforce that law. We've got other things to do." and 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 this, we can't be the mask police, is what they said in, in uh, Orange County here. Um, so on the one hand, it seems like that's a good thing to push back against when you're asked to do something you don't think is a justifiable or at least an enforceable law. But on the other hand, it, it seems to undermine the rule of law when, when the police are then the ones deciding which laws they're going to enforce. How do you, how does, and I think that's one of the dilemmas that that police today are, are put under. Is there a way for them to deal with that dilemma? I mean, one thing they can be doing in that case is making clear what, doing it publicly and openly, as opposed to we just secretly don't enforce this law, and articulating like why this is impossible. There are just too many laws here to enforce all of them well. Uh, we're not given the resources, it's not possible, and we don't think it's just, but it's also just not possible. And so we are put in the position of having to make this judgment call. We would rather we weren't, it shouldn't be up to us, but we are, and so this is what we're making. And that's in effect what sanctuary city policies are, by the way. It's a city that's been tasked by federal law to do something it's impossible for it to do, or it thinks it's impossible for it to do well, and unjust, and saying, look, we're not going to devote resources, we're announcing what our policy is. But I think they can do that on all sorts of things. It's what was basically done to start the decriminalization process of marijuana in a lot of places, right? Certain uh, police uh, mayors or police departments or whatever, just making it our lowest enforcement priority, which means we're not enforcing it because we never get, you know, to our third or fourth highest priority, right, um, to arrest people for marijuana. And I think that was the right thing for them to do. And it was right that they did it publicly and openly rather than cops... Uh, just deciding to let people go, but then if they happen to dislike somebody, you know, someone could write them up. And if you're thinking about community relations, it's so much better to just be open about this is what we're doing. Because I think one of the reasons, so the enforcing masks, that they don't want to do it is they can't do it anywhere close to for everybody. So everyone who they direct the force against will understandably feel like this is arbitrary. You're singling me out. Why me? Over there, you can see people walking without a mask and so on. And it creates such distrust. And the police have nothing to say. Like it's all they can say is, well, I can't get everybody. But it's it. And they are functioning more. Okay, I'll do it here and I won't do it there. And, and they're, they don't know how to function. So it ends up being arbitrary. 
And you feel that even if you can't name it, you feel it as a person in the community that, okay, yeah, you've got it in for me. I don't trust you. And it, it, it really, I mean, it's the same with immigration. It's part of why they don't want to enforce it is because it creates such kind of community distrust. So you asked what good police can do. And I think at sort of an organizational institutional level, we all have an interest that we have good laws on the books. The police have a real interest that they, there's good laws in the books. They understand what we're supposed to be doing. They think it's possible for them to do it. And they should be advocating for, look, you've passed, whether it's Congress, there's particular state, their local governments, you've passed these laws. We can't function under these laws. We don't know what to do. We don't know how, and this might be a better law or just strike this from the books. And so they should be, part of the feedback you should be getting is from the good officers about, yeah, this is good law. We're able to enforce it. It's working well. This is bad law and it's creating all kinds of problems. And you, you the legislative branch, really have to think about revisiting this and passing better law and it will be better for us and it will be better for all the residents of our communities and that they can get involved in that in a positive direction and this is the worry and some of the mayors brought this up that the unions are too much about as unions generally are preserving the status quo whatever the status quo happens to be and that if you're a good officer you think that's not it can be better than what it is, and you should be on the side of making it better. From the perspective of citizens and what they can do uh, to improve uh, the situation, I, I find it particularly frustrating that, that society passes all kinds of laws for how they think people should live their lives and how they shouldn't live their lives, in many of which are beyond the proper scope of government. And they don't realize that what this means is putting into the police the task of, uh, of running people's lives. And then many of these same people become angry when the police overstep their boundaries. Now, that doesn't mean that the police have no agency and that there's nothing that's their fault about it. But uh, what do you expect when they're given these jobs by these laws? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point in particular to make to the the political left who tend to be very worried about gun violence and the risks of having a gun in your home and you wouldn't want to have a gun around and we should have less gun. And put aside the issues of whether there should be gun control or not, those are legitimate worries, right? If you're thinking of buying a gun, um, you want to think about, well, how good am I, how safely, is this really more likely to protect me or is it more likely to hurt someone in an accident? Well, whenever you make something a law, you're making someone with a gun coming around to, uh, to, to deal with this, to enforce it, to have, uh, even if they're not supposed to, you know, even if they're not supposed to be a capital, they pull someone over to check, uh, does his inspection up to date, uh, is his taillight in good shape, um, uh, or whatever the issue is. And the, uh, you know, is that marijuana he's got in the car, whatever, uh, is he an immigrant? And every time you have an, an interaction with that, you have an interaction between somebody who's suspicious of a cop, a cop who's suspicious of him, where neither of them knows the other, and at least one of those parties is armed. And you can know that for any law you pass, someone's going to die at some point through the enforcement of it, right? Um, there's always a kind of margin of error, even if everybody's of the best will. And of course, everybody isn't always of the best will. Um, so we should really be thinking about what government does is wield force, and force should only be wielded um, 
judiciously and when it's appropriate. And it's, it's deadly dangerous to have it in areas where it doesn't belong. So we're about 45 minutes in. Uh, we spent a fair amount of time talking about what this was a reaction to, but I think we need to spend a, e a decent, equal amount of time talking about the reaction to it. And I've already had a number of people in the chat and in the questions say, well, but does any of this justify uh, the riots? And so before we talk about that specifically, uh, I think we need to talk more about uh, what responses are warranted. We've talked now already about what kind of legal reforms might be necessary and, and how to push for those. Uh, but of course, there's a, there is a question of, well, how do you push for a legal reform? How do you raise your voice? How do you protest? Uh, how do you convince public officials to change their mind? Because the kind of ordinary uh, legal channels don't always seem to do it as quickly as some people want to. So why don't we start first by uh, looking at this as uh, a response to racism? Now, we talked before about how, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's hard to rule out racial elements in these kinds of police cases taking for the granted, at least for the moment, that there's a racial element involved here, or that there are at least other cases with these racial elements, what is the way to respond to that? And it seems to me, at least, and tell, tell me what you both think, that, uh, that there needs to be some kind of vocal protest against uh, racism, especially if it comes in the form of uh, the police, especially because America has such a long legacy of racism, especially coming from the police, uh, and that in many ways we've never really dealt with it. Uh, Ayn Rand herself was on record for saying that uh, racism was a really crude, uh, really crude form of collectivism. I think I'll just go ahead and uh, put on the screen a quotation from her about this for the record here. She said, racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism the notion of ascribing moral, social, or political significance to man's genetic lineage, uh, a doctrine of, by, and for brutes. That's from her essay, Racism. I'll give the uh, more information later on how you can read that essay. But uh, what it's, it's one thing to speak out against racism, and there need to be peaceful ways of doing that, but obviously violence, rioting, Looting are another matter. Uh, well, I could I mean, say more on this, but, but maybe you want to jump in there. Yeah, I don't think this is really the right point to bring in racism because it really matters who the racism's by and what the effect of it is, what the right response. If, if some shop owner somewhere is a racist or just some guy and he's really rude, the, the, the limit of the racism is he doesn't deal with black people and he's really rude to them. Well, there's one way to deal with that. Everybody should shun that guy and say what a jerk he is and so forth. But if what we're talking about is um, racism on the part of police that um, uh, um, manifests itself in terms of uh, police shooting people or arresting people they shouldn't or so forth, then although racism is a part of the problem, the essential feature that's relevant to thinking about what to do about the problem the main one is that it's well force is being wielded here and how do we respond to the fact that the government is wielding force against people that it shouldn't and mm -hmm. how large a scale that problem is is a, is a is a part of how you respond to it 
So if you're living in a police state, if, so if, if, if the racist government is the government of Nazi Germany, and what it's doing is rounding up and executing all the people of a certain race, or if it's the government of uh, antebellum Georgia, and what it's doing is enforcing slavery and capturing killed, you know, uh, freed slaves, then the right response is to rise up and have a revolution against the government. Um, if the government is the present government of Minnesota or of, of, uh, uh, of New York City or something, I, that, then that's not the right response. So the, the issue is what, what rights are being violated in what way, how endemic is it, how systematic, and to what extent do the people who are the victims of this and or who are concerned about it have a means of redressing it within the system. And we do have means of redressing it within the system. We can vote and we can speak. And if you're having a protest, what are you trying to accomplish by the protest? Are, there, are you just trying to raise consciousness of the issue? Okay, then what do you want to do about it? What are the measures you're voting, you, you want to rally people to vote for? Uh, and there, there should be a kind of plan of action, a goal or a purpose to a protest. And I'm skeptical that mass gathering protests are very often an appropriate, uh, even moral way to handle this. Sometimes they are, but I think fairly rarely. But whatever the kind of protest, it's got to be have a goal in mind. And what too often I think has happened, particularly in the uh, cases of police brutality and particularly where they're thought to be, and I think in some cases rightly thought to be race-based police brutality, um, what's happened is we had a time when people were there was starting to be a mass public conversation about well, what reforms can we have. There was a, yeah, something really went wrong in Baltimore and this guy died in the back of this car and it's not an isolated incident. What should we be doing about this? Why, is this? why does this keep happening? And people were thinking about it and it was a fairly wide swath of the political spectrum that was agreed. Something should change here. How can we fix it? Um, and too often what happens in these protests is... Um, you have protests which are very vague in their goals and organized by people who have much broader ideological agendas that have just seized on this issue as an occasion to do it. Uh, I went to, uh, I didn't go to go to the protest, but I was in Manhattan shortly after the Eric Garner killing and I saw the protest march through. Uh, and it was a bunch of people with anarchist flags and Soviet this and that and skull and crawl and all kinds of things that weren't about here's how we can fix the police. It was about, let's tear down the society. Um, and they were saying, tear it down, tear it down. They weren't saying, you know, civilian review boards for the police or more body cameras or better training uh, or, you know, whatever. They didn't have a solution. Or, and they weren't saying, more investigations into how we can fix this, right? Maybe you don't know what policy would be better, but you want to call attention to it. So you really want, if you're going to have a protest, a focused goal either a particular policy goal or a goal to get some information to get a particular policy goal. And that's absent. And when that's absent, it's very easy for the protests to be hijacked or taken over or just evolve into uh, lawless, anarchic rioting. And that's what's happened to, I don't know how many, it's hard to tell, but to a fair number of the protests that are going on now. Now, I have seen some people make the argument, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but they've made the argument that it's... It's precisely the uh, anarchic destruction that uh, gives incentive for change, because if the police and society at large have to suffer, 
from the consequences of these riots, then they'll, they'll reform the system so that they don't have to happen again. I mean, that's what the no justice, no peace slogan is supposed to mean. Uh, yeah, what do you think about that? There aren't any examples in history, as far as I know, of that ever working. When it works on a society-wide level, it leads to revolutions that make things worse. And um, what happened in 2015, when this happened, is a, a preempting of a growing national consensus that we need to actually do something about police. Right? It didn't and face it, in one. I mean, if you think of the, the ammunition it gives Trump, the, so it's one thing to say this will lead to change. It's another thing to say this will lead to good change. And if it plays into the hands of his, um, when the rioting starts, the shooting start, it, 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 it so easily plays into the hands of people who are saying, look, the problem is the police aren't forceful enough and they need to be more forceful. Look at all the destruction, look at all the innocent people and so on. And we need to give the police more power, not less power. And it, I don't think that's a proper conceptualization of what is going on, but it is. So the idea that rioting and violating people's rights and making more innocent victims, that that's, oh, that's the path to positive change. It might be a path to change, but it's not a path to positive change. It's easy to destroy things. It's hard to build things, but what you should be interested in, if you're genuinely worried about yeah, we need police, but not police like doing this kind of thing as what happened in Minneapolis. And it's how do you build something better? And the idea that rioting and smashing shop windows and so on, that's the path to it is, I mean, basically it's crazy. And it further instills the false alternative that it's either law and order understood as unleashing some cops to bust in skulls or we don't do that and it's a free-for-all and people can be free to have sex with whoever they want, smoke whatever they want, uh, immigrate wherever they want, and break into a store and take whatever they want, right? I mean, like, uh, this package deal, uh, that's the real problem in American politics of anarchic, lawless behavior on the one hand, rightless behavior on the other hand, and non-rights respective quashing and controlling of all behavior on the other hand. The right way for human beings to live is by principle, by respect of light rights, by a rule of law that enshrines those rights in specific processes, then there's due process by which they're enforced and protected. And there are people charged with doing that. And everybody who's good has an interest in that, has an interest in making and building up that system and repairing that system when it has problems. And the idea that you wanna tear it down and put what in its place, and you don't have any answer is a big part of the problem. And there's this perception that there's, you know, the Trump kind of right that's the opposite of the Antifa kind of left. But they're the same people. They're the very same mindset. If you think about the key article that, that um, brought conservatives around to Trump, it was an article saying we need to burn it down with the Flight 93 election article um, by that creep who's now ahead of the National Conservatives. I forget what his name is. Uh, and if you look at what Trump's message to black voters was, right, it's, you got nothing to lose. The world's as bad as it can be. That's the same message that somebody says if they say, you know, burn it down, flame things, loot your neighborhood, which, by the way, it's not only, I don't even think primarily uh, African-Americans who are engaged in all of this looting. It turns out it's a lot of um, 
white leftist nihilists who see themselves as allies and think stealing a TV will somehow help uh, who are doing it. Um, I'm not that I'm sure there are black people doing it too, but, um, but it's that message of the system's broken. Uh, the effect is just to tear it down and not because I have this other thing to put in its place. The uh, Flight 93 election guy you're talking about is Michael Anton, for the record. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me ask a question similar to the one that I asked at the end of our first uh, half of discussion, which is, now suppose we're talking about one of the better people who wants to go out and protest police brutality. And I, I have no doubt that there are better people who've gone to these protests, who have nothing at all to do with the rioting, who sincerely perceive the existence of injustice and who want to do something about it. And so the question I would ask about them is, what should they really be doing? Should they be going to these protests at all? Is this uh, or is this creating conditions for rioting that's only going to undercut uh, their case? Should they be doing that, but, but doing it in a better way? Uh, thoughts on that? I mean, I have a view which we, I want to leave aside for a moment, we can talk about it later, about, I don't agree with this, the whole protest culture in effect, and that everybody can protest anything and block the streets and, and interfere with everybody's lives, but it, that's not distinct to this. It's environmentalist protesting, um, global warming, and then the women's march, and many of these things I think should not happen. So there's an issue of thinking, if you're thinking of it more in principle, like are protests proper in this kind of way? and trying to decide, should I go to any kind of protest? That's one kind of thing. In this specific case, I think it's support the organizations doing actual positive constructive work. And it's a lot harder to do that than to just go out in the street and march with them. They sort of sound like, yeah, it seems okay. Find out who's actually doing constructive work and you can get involved or you can donate time, money to that. So in, in Minneapolis, from what I've seen on the, the news, the, the firing was partly, of the four officers, was partly as a result of a grassroots organization meeting with the mayor and in effect asking, how can these police still be on the force? And, so, and, it, and it, it made the mayor, I think, think about it probably more than he had been. From what I've seen of his press conferences, he seems sincere in his outrage by this. And it led uh, supposedly to the uh, either next day or maybe even that afternoon, they were fired. And that's something constructive to do. It's not burning down the city. It's not smashing the, the shops of innocent people, but it's expressing your outrage in a way that's constructive and you're asking for actual and legitimate action. Like, it's a real question. Why are they still on the force? At least, should they, why aren't they suspended? Um, they can't just go around as though nothing has happened. And, and that's some, and there's, I mean, that's on this specific incident, but there's so many organizations doing, I think, constructive work on what's put as criminal justice reform that you can find, you can really think and read about what they're doing and think, yeah, this I think is supportive. I support this. This is a positive step. Let me see how I can get involved in that. Um, and it's such a better use of time because you're now doing something positive and thoughtful. And those kind of organizations will do things to make themselves more prominent 
when there are flashpoint issues like this. So uh, Cato, I know, and some other uh, will call themselves libertarian organizations, but from other organizations too, have been working on this um, liability issue, uh, qualified liability issue for a long time now. And it got a lot more attention now because they wrote op-eds and press releases uh, relating it to this recent case. And maybe you don't know, like we didn't know because we hadn't been following that particular issue, uh, if this is the right challenge to the law. But now, you know, read those articles, follow that up. I'm going to follow it up more. Um, and, you know, look for the other organizations that are doing things like that. And then in the future, you'll know who to support or you can support some of them now. Look for the people who are saying things constructively. And in general, orient yourself to the question of who's actually trying to do something, including trying to tell you how to think about how to do something well, right? Uh, including to, trying to give you good information that would help you make good decisions. And who's just trying to rile things up and foment anger. Fomenting anger is fine so long as it's anger that's well-directed at a particular injustice with an idea of what to do to act on that injustice. Who's trying to do the latter thing and who's trying to just create a burn-it-down kind of anger? And if you do that, you stop thinking in terms that are so wedded to the current political divide. This, the left is for this and the right is for that and I'm on the left so I'm for this or I'm on the right and I'm for that or I hate both of them so I'm for both. Cato's, I guess, perceived as on the right. This is another organization that might be pro-justice reform is on, is on the left. This is there. But it, some organizations on both sides are actually doing some useful things or on either side and some are just uh, riling people up. Likewise, look for writers on these issues who are interesting to you. What publications and what particular writers at the publication are giving you information that's trying to give you some insight into this? So back in 2015, 2014, 20, around that time, um, I was, and even before that, I was trying to figure out, well, how, how widespread is the problem of police brutality? Is it just a couple of cases and we happen to hear about them? Uh, because they get sensationalized, or is it a widespread problem? To what extent is it more of a problem if uh, for uh, more victims are black than white? Does it depend on what kind of crime or what kind of city? And there are certain writers and columnists who were, either they had answers to that, or they were saying, you know, it's a problem, we don't, and here's what we're doing to try to find it. I think the Washington Post started a database tracking this information, which wasn't being tracked yet. Uh, and that got me, you know, reading the Washington Post more. Uh, Connor Friedersdorf, who's a writer at The Atlantic, has always been very good on this issue. Uh, he comes from a more libertarianish perspective, and that part of what got me interested in him as a writer is seeing how sensible he was on this, and I've learned a lot from him on other issues. So it's be looking for who's trying to identify what a problem is and what we can do about it, and who's just trying to foment rage. And I'd say one thing particularly about the law and the judicial system. It's, it's an oversimplification, I think an injustice to talk about the judges and the law in right left terms, in, which I think are not even ideologies, they're labels that don't mean a lot. And it, so you, uh, I think even you brought this up, Ben, not that you were echoing this, but the stories like this, that, oh, well, on this issue, even Clarence Thomas and Sotomayor can find common ground on it. But that's not because, well, this is a leftist and this is, it's, they have different approaches to the law and so on, but there's decisions where they're together. There's decisions where they're apart. Our, we would be in a really worse situation if our law and judicial system was that politicized, 
that all that matters is, oh yeah, I mean, Trump appointed me, so that now all my decisions reflect that, or Obama appointed me. So it are the law and the judges are much, much more sophisticated and objective than that, even though I think there's a lot of problems. But the problems to really address them is not, let's get our judges in there. So it's, you have to address the law, the principles involved, see if they've been interpreted and so on. And it's complicated. This is why you need real organizations and specialists who have looked at the law and think, like, this is where it's going well, this is where it's going wrong. And, so and if, if, if you try to think with these um, uh, categories, which are really tribes, they're not, they don't designate ideas or an ideology, you, can, you will not understand anything of this. And you'll most likely give your support to things that don't deserve it. Um, it, this takes a lot of more first-hand thinking if you really want to do something positive or constructive. Let's let's talk more about the tribalistic aspect of this because while we're, we're seeing, in some cases, actual uh, tribalistic violence on the street, there's the there's the broader cultural issue of the way people think tribalistically about these kinds of controversies, and. I think there are a lot of people who, if you look at debates about what's happening right now online, a lot of people want to pick sides. They want to be on the, I'm with the cops and law and order side. And then there's others who want to say, no, I'm, I'm against the cops and I'm for racial justice. And they pick that as their team. And I think there are even, it goes even further than that. I mean, people will make kind of perfunctory uh, they'll go through the motions of recognizing that there's a problem on the other side, but it's really only perfunctory. Like, of course, racism and police brutality are bad, but, and then long commentary on why they don't like protesters and riots or the, or the reverse, like, of course, rioting's bad, but so it, it seems to me that there really are two big problems here, both of which need to be addressed and that neither of the tribes is thinking seriously about them. Well, I don't. How do we with, deal with this? I don't agree with that. I think there's one big problem here, and it's just manifest in these two ways. Okay. And it's the problem of lack of respect for rights and for um, lawfulness. The, the, that is the legitimate lawfulness on the part of uh, lack of respect for rights and the rule of law on the part of. Uh, politicians who are making non-objective laws in the first place on the part of police officers who the even the best of them have to try to enforce these laws but can't and sometimes end up messing up but the worst of them exploit this as occasions to um lord it over people right and then on the part of people who uh interpret their when they have grievances just like the police and the people who passed or advocated for the bad laws had grievances, don't try to um, address the grievances through the channel of uh, creating good objective law that enables us, or advocating for good objective law that enables us to live together peacefully. Instead, they try to uh, uh, press what they imagine to be their interests by taking to the street and being a mob. So it's mob rule versus rule of law and it's mob rule when people use the machinery of democracy to try to vote for whatever they want um, 
or whatever they imagine to be just, imagine to solve a problem, but not governed by any principle. Uh, and it's mob rule when people try to do it more directly by smashing and burning things in the street. Anything to add on that, Ankar? I mean, I wonder the, the way you were putting it, because I think this, if, in a very simple way, this applies often that two wrongs don't make a right. And there's often the perspective of, well, look that they're doing something wrong. And then that justifies, oh, I can do anything, therefore. So look at these bad rioters. And therefore, the, yeah, the police can do anything. And, and we're not going to say anything. And I'm not concerned about that. Or vice versa to see, look, look at this, what's happened in Minneapolis. Look at what the police did. This is obviously unjust. And therefore, we can go around and do smash windows. And so look, and we just point to this, like, look what was done. And that is not, I mean, it's not moral. It's not thinking about the issue. Um, so if you ask, like, what side should you be on? You should be on the side of truth and justice. And you should recognize that it takes a lot to figure out what's the truth here and what is justice. But it's not sufficient to say, um, oh, the, take on the side, uh, so probably more would view themselves uh, on the sort of objectivist Ayn Rand side to say, oh yeah, look how bad the rioters are. Look at all this lawlessness in the cities. And like, that's all that. And then you wash your hands of the, yeah, we don't need criminal justice reform. We don't have to be concerned about these issues. And that's not a right response. Um, if you're really concerned with justice, you have to be concerned with it everywhere. And then you find some injustice here doesn't tell you what's happening in the other place. And if you're actually concerned, you want to know, not it's okay, they're doing something bad. So I don't have to look at that because this is even worse than what the police did. You want to actually know what's happening and what your government is doing. I'll just share with with you my own some of the the reflection I've been doing on this kind of thing in just the past few days. I mean, I've found personally myself just as a subjective reaction that I've been angrier about the riots than I have been than I was about the police killing. But then I thought, well, why? Why am I angry about that? Well, and when you know you see the the city is being destroyed and and it's it's a lot more visible in a certain way. Uh, and you have to get to shop at these places. But how much of that is just because, well, these are the places I shop and I don't know this guy and he looks different from me. And those are totally subjective factors. And I can, I can see why other people would be angry, more angry about one than they would about the other and makes me think I should be angrier about both. Yeah, but I also, I mean, I agree with, with that perspective on it, but I also think I experience my upsetness at the riots as on behalf of the same cause that I'm upset about when I'm upset about the police brutality. So I remember I was following more closely the cases the last time this erupted uh, than I have been this time. And I've been following the police brutality cases, the Michael Brown, the Eric Garner, and the, the, the Freddie Cray. And um, the, the protests in New York I saw happened before the Fr Freddie Gray uh, either before he was killed or before it got a lot of national attention, I forget, but anyway, before I knew about it. Uh, so I was in New York and I saw there was a protest about this. There had been a bunch of protests where people were lying on the ground and doing things that I also um, am skeptical of street protests as an appropriate means, but the ones that there had been seemed like they had been appropriate from what I read about them in the paper. And within the context that that's how people protest today, I thought, well, more or less, uh, these guys seem to, to be on the, the right side here. Um, 
And then I saw this group going through the streets chanting, you know, tear it down, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, tear it down, tear it down, and going through Rockefeller Center shouting this uh, with police patiently escorting them and keeping them safe while they were doing it, waving their anarchist flags with their uh, and their Antifa things and so forth, running around. And um, now they weren't burning things yet, but a few weeks later things started getting burnt and uh, looted in Baltimore. But I remember when I saw that protest and then when I saw the uh, the stuff happening in Baltimore, my thought wasn't these horrible people doing this awful thing that are on the other side of the, the um, that were on the other side, so to speak, opposite of the, the issues I was worried about in policing. It was, this is now going to kill the movement to um, improve policing. This is uh, now a good cause being co-opted by a vacuous and evil ideology. You start seeing capitalism kills and so forth when it has nothing to do with capitalism. And indeed, capitalism is what saves here. Um, but uh, you start seeing this, and I uh, interpret it as the same problem. Uh, there are two sides of the same problem. And so I agree, one of them will be more emotionally salient to you than the other, uh, depending on where you are at what time, and different ones are more emotionally salient to me at the same time. But I think it brings a lot of clarity to the issue to see it as the wrong the wrong, doing the wrong thing in what you might perceive as your side of a fight doesn't advance your side of the fight. It's part of what destroys it. And more deeply, it's on the other side. It's on the side of lawlessness. It's on the side of anarchy. It's on the side of force. It takes a lot of work to see that these two problems are really expressions of the same root that you've just identified. And, and I mean, this is... Uh, part and parcel of what Ankar has been saying about how it's, a, it's an achievement to reform a system. It's also, uh, it takes a lot of work to reform your own thinking and uh, to direct it in an objective way as opposed to wanting to pick, uh, to fall into the temptation of picking a tribal side. Um, yeah, in this case, I mean, so I understand there are subjective reactions that this is more salient to me I can put myself more in this position or that position. In this case, th the idea of picking a side, I find so bizarre. They're both so harrowing. Uh, one of the things I think, if you're taken seriously, like you're a citizen and you're responsible for how your government act, is to watch the video of what happened in Minneapolis. Um, it's, I mean, it's really, really difficult to watch. And if that, like, if you're not both outrage and just saddened, like a profound sadness about the guy's pleading for his life. He doesn't seem any kind of threat. There's four officers there. Nobody seems to care at all. There's bystanders pleading. Like if that doesn't break your heart. And then to see that it's exactly the same thing if you actually watch some of the rioting. I've seen shopkeepers in tears. I mean, they, they haven't been able to open and they've opened everything's destroyed. They pleaded with the protesters, don't smash, I have nothing to do with this, don't smash. And they smashed and looted the store anyway. And then it's, yeah, I might be able to come back, but you get even like, I don't know if I want to come back, but there's a lot of people in this community I value, but it, and they're like, they're heartbroken as well. And if, if neither, if neither side, if, if you think, oh, I have to pick a side here, like if both don't break your heart and you think, there's massive injustice here that needs to be rectified. Um, 
it's you're so far down the tribal element that you really have to think like really this I, have, I feel like I have to pick a side here that I can't see the injustice on both sides. What is it that has prompted me to reach that level? Um, and it, I mean, I, I find it hard to fathom. What do you think then of the idea that somebody will respond to that and say, yeah, I have to be kind of moderate or in the middle. I don't want to choose a side and these are the two sides. So I have to be neutral and give to each its due. And this is part oh, of why you're trying to push that it's just that it's one problem, not two, right? right, right. I mean, it, it's that there's not two, there's justice and there's injustice. And it's both are instances of injustice. And that's what you should be responding to. And if I'm on the side of judge, justice, it's how, does, do, how do you help prevent this from happening again? This is part of why I'm against protests. And these mass, they, they easily lead to this kind of violence. But I also think they're already interferences with people's lives. If you have protest, if you're a shopkeeper and there's protests day after day in, in the streets where nobody, so nobody can come and shop and so that's, you're destroying that person's business. And so if you're on the side of justice, then you're thinking everywhere, like what would be just here? And why is this an injustice? And who's, what innocent people's lives are being destroyed? Um, and it, in both cases, it's obvious that there's innocent lives being destroyed. If it's not outright murder, then it's the livelihood is destroyed. Let me take uh, what one of the things you just said, Ankar, as an opportunity to show that other quotation, uh, because I think you, you can see the perspective of justice coming out in what Ayn Rand says about the right way to protest. And this is from her essay, The Cashing In, The Student Rebellion from 1965. Uh, I'll just read the whole thing because it, it makes several of the points we've been discussing. Civil disobedience may be justifiable in some cases when and if an individual disobeys a law in order to bring an issue to court as a test case. Such an action involves respect for legality and protest directed only at a particular law which the individual seeks as an opportunity to prove to be unjust. The same is true of a group of individuals when and if the risks involved are their own. But there's no justification in a civilized society for the kind of mass civil disobedience that involves the violation of the rights of others, regardless of whether the demonstrator's goal is good or evil. The end does not justify the means. No one's rights can be secured by the violation of the rights of others. Mass disobedience is an assault on the concept of rights. It is a mob's defiance of legality as such. And then this last part, I think, is particularly relevant to what we were just discussing. The only power of a mob as against an individual is greater muscular strength, i.e. plain brute physical force. The attempt to solve social problems by means of physical force is what civilized society is established to prevent. And so if that's what it comes to, that's undercutting uh, everything that's, that's undercutting the mechanisms of justice that we need to solve uh, problems of racial injustice and so forth. I, I take it as part of what she's saying there. Uh, we've gone an hour and 22 minutes. Why don't we maybe go until uh, 30 after and, and take in a few questions because we've gotten a lot. And if there are people in Zoom who'd still like to submit some, I, I definitely suggest plugging them into the Q&A module. Just hover over your screen. There's a button that says Q&A and that is the best place to plug in questions that we can answer. Um, so there's a lot here. We, we already uh, discussed qualified immunity. So I think we addressed John's question. Um, 
Let's see. Nick's asking about some guy with a bow and arrow. I haven't encountered that particular guy. I haven't guy. either. So, uh, You'll have to tell us more, Nick. Some other time. Um, uh, Mason asks, when you're evaluating videos of a violent event like George Floyd's apparent death, what sorts of questions do you ask yourself to make a proper evaluation of what you're seeing? Same goes through videos coming out of uh, Minnesota or around the country of riots. I mean, one question I ask myself is what context might there be? That, what do I see happening in this video? Right? So I see a, a cop with his knee on someone's neck. I see the guy saying, I can't breathe. I see people saying, the guy can't breathe. You know, what are you doing? Get off of him. And the cop not getting off of him and the other cop standing by. Right? Uh, that's what I saw in that video. I see what context might there be that I'm not seeing. How much do I know about what's going on here? And part of what I think about that too is, what don't I know about policing and methods of policing and training? And it's because I know that I don't know a lot about that, that even when it looks to me like a clear case of murder, I think maybe there's something I don't know that if the video started earlier or something, I could see why, although it looks like he had every reason to get off of him, uh, he, uh, he had reasonably afraid that the guy would do this or that if he did or whatever. Um, but that's why I think like, well, because I know I don't know that, I want to hear what other people who are knowledgeable about this have to say. So when, uh, when the police from the town fires him, when other police unions and police chiefs say, no, this is totally unacceptable, it really is like it looks to you, that uh, you know, confirms me in, yeah, this guy clearly didn't need to be doing that. Um, but I want to hear what people uh, who are knowledgeable about the activity that's happening there uh, have to say that I might not know about how to understand and assess what I'm what I'm seeing. That's what I ask myself. Balkar Ben, do you? I mean, a lot of what when when these kinds of clips have circulated online in the past, it is really context that makes a difference because sometimes what you'll get is you'll get a clip where you see the police officer responding, but you don't see what it was the suspect was doing in advance. And sometimes when you then see the broader context, like this person was on some terrible drugs that were making him incredibly violent and there was only one way to sub subdue the person or you know the uh, the person was making a movement that looked like they were going for a gun and the police officer only had a split second to re respond and there are aspects of their training that kick in to deal with certain kinds of situations it's very imprecise training so uh but yeah here I, you didn't see anything even close to that um, it's, so it's part of it you didn't see it but it, it's so this is a snippet caught on camera. What's all the things not caught on camera? And there's usually reporting about it. So it's, oh, okay, you found out about the counterfeiting. Like that's different than if he was holding up the store with a gun. And it, but it was, no, he's passing a $20 bill, counter, supposedly counterfeit bill. That makes a big difference. And, and there's a lot of things you can learn that's not gonna be captured on camera. But if you're actually looking at what the evidence is and what's accumulating, you have to read the news, not just watch a, yeah. a video and then, okay, I know everything I need to know about and Mason also made an important additional point in the parenthesis here. Same goes for videos coming out of riots. The, the same uh, phenomenon can happen on the other side, which is that TV news stations can, they can play, they can, I mean, they have helicopters, they go to the worst parts of town, they shoot uh, images of the worst things that are happening, and you get the pictures of the smoke and the fire. Uh, you don't get the context of, well, what is the rest of the city like? Is it really the case that the whole city is burning down? And what are the rest of these protesters doing? Is it just a small number of bad protesters surrounded by a lot of good ones? Uh, so you have to take the same respect for context into account when looking at those kinds of cases. 
Yeah, and what's going on around the country? Like, you know, it's easy to have the impression there were some protests and now it's mass rioting everywhere. I don't know whether that's true. I mean, it might be that most cities, there are protests that are going on perfectly peacefully and we can debate about whether this kind of protest is the right form of protesting this kind of injustice, but there are, you know, marches in the streets with people having signs and no one's harming anybody or any property. Uh, but there's a handful of places there's this rioting. Uh, or it might be, you know, everywhere you go where there are no peaceful protests about this anymore, it turned a corner and now it's all rioting. You need to, you know, there's no one image that can tell you that. Okay. Any other questions we should deal with here? Some of these we've already um, answered. Reed McGraw says that most police brutality cases that have been prosecuted had led to acquittals. Uh, he assumes that those courts properly administered justice. Do you agree? I mean, I myself don't know enough to answer that question about the history. I have the impression that uh, more of them have led to prosecution recently, but that's... Well, he said in the case of the prosecutions, they've led to acquittals. You mean, you mean do you mean more? I, I mean, fewer of them, I think, have led to acquittals recently, but uh, that it may well be true in the longer uh, scope of history that the ones that have been prosecuted have been acquitted. And that's something, something I mean, that's certainly what led to the Rodney King uh, riots in 92 was uh, the, the police officers being acquitted of having beaten him. So if they lead to acquittal, right, the question is, is that because, um, why do they lead to acquittal? One, the officers might be innocent. Two, the officers might be guilty, but it's very difficult to prove. And maybe there's something procedural that makes it difficult to prove, like evidence isn't gathered the right way after a, after a police case. There's a culture of police officers not informing on one another, or there aren't enough cameras, or whatever it might be. Or it might be that the standards uh, that they're held to are inappropriate, so that what you'd have to convict them of um, was something you could never prove against anybody else, but it's... Um, uh, this is, I mean, what's claimed, this is now in civil liability rather than criminal, but... Uh, or sorry, no, it's not. It's, it's in criminal. It's a qualified immunity issue. Is is a an issue that's um, going to this point, right? That the standards are wrong. But I don't know which it is, and I expect all of these things are the case in different cases, including that I think a lot of the cops are probably innocent because I'm sure a lot of people make up stuff about cops when they want to get off of a crime. Um, but part of the problem is if there's a widespread perception that the criminal justice system lets off cops who kill people, that is a problem that the criminal justice system needs to solve. And you can say, well, it's the leftist media or the liberal this or the liberal that or whoever who's uh, spreading these rumors, and that may be true even if, but it's part of the job of the police officer, of the government, is uh, persuading the public by giving them the information they need to tell that this is true, that they are objectively and properly enforcing the law with due process. And if, if we're in a situation where a lot of people don't think that, uh, there's work that needs to be done to fix that. Um, one other thing about the way, well, two things about the, the question. So one is it's asking about the people have been prosecuted. So this issue of um, partial immunity is you're immune to even being prosecuted. So it doesn't even go to trial. So it excludes all those cases and then of the cases that go to trial. But there's a difference between asking uh, so it was, I assume those courts properly administered justice. What does that mean? Does it mean properly administered the law? 
or that justice was achieved. And part of the reason one should be really concerned with what the law is, um, is laws a means to reach justice. But if you have bad law, you can try to administer it the best that you can. And the result still is not justice. So if you take this issue of partial immunity and you come to think, no, it's too easy to be granted partial immunity. It's, you, you will think, well, that results in injustice, but it's not a corrupt court system in the sense that all the judges are biased. And so it's rather the law's wrong. So it makes it really hard to prosecute the police. And so fewer are prosecuted, they even go to trial than that should. So there's a difference between administering justice and administering the law. And I don't think our courts are anywhere at the level of the law is just blatantly disregarded and you've got biased judges and crooked prosecutors. And so, I mean, this happens in third world countries where it's, it doesn't matter what the laws on the books are, it's who have you bribed. And so I don't think that's what goes on in, in the prosecution, even of, of not even of police cases. So in that sense, I think they're lawfully done. The question is, is the law good or not? Thanks everyone for, uh, for asking your questions. Thanks, Greg and Ankar, for joining me today. I'm going to take people out now with just a few announcements and reminders for who can still watch us. Um, so to begin with, uh, let me just uh, mention a few uh, resources that uh, we, we mentioned today that you can follow up on. I read from a passage from Ayn Rand's essay on racism. Uh, you can uh, look that essay up online if you go to courses.einrand.org slash works slash racism. And that is that will lay out to you the reasons why Ayn Rand thought this was such an evil form of collectivism and why she thought it needed to be critiqued. Uh, we also looked at a passage from her essay, The Cashing in the Student Rebellion. That essay is not online, but you can read it if you go to her book, Return of the Primitive. Uh, you can just look that book up on Amazon or, or uh, see our reference to it on our webpage. Um, I'll also just mention that if you, if you enjoy watching New Ideal and you'd like to see future episodes, uh, please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can hit that red subscribe button and also be sure to hit the, the little bell icon if you'd like to get notifications uh, for when we go live in the future. And I'll just then remind you that New Ideal Live does happen uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, not necessarily each day, but uh, if it happens, it's going to happen on a Monday or a Wednesday at the very least, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. We went longer than we usually do today because of the special circumstances of the weekend. On Wednesday this week, we will be back to hopefully our regular format of uh, 45 minutes to an hour. I will be interviewing Dr. Amish Adalja to get an update on his view about the state of the pandemic and uh, the lockdowns that are now being lifted and what it is that explained why they were instituted in the first place. So hope to see many more of you then. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks all and thanks Greg and Ankar. Bye-bye. Thanks Ben, thanks everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.